we are approaching the change of a season. We're approaching the start of a new school year. For some of you, we're approaching the time of harvest. For some others, there are changes to your job or changes to your retirement, changes in your life. Life, life is about change, and with change comes questions of priority. What is most important to us? And while it's very easy to answer that question by saying, well, God is most important, or my, my faith is most important, the call in Scripture again and again is to examine ourselves carefully and to ask the question, does my life really reflect my priorities? Does the way I live show that I am putting God first? We're going to spend the next few weeks, the rest of the month of August, we're going to spend this month in the book of Haggai, and I know some of you are thinking to yourself, yes, finally, Haggai. I have waited and waited for a sermon series on Haggai. I can't believe he's finally doing it. And then there's a few others, just a couple, who are saying, who? Who's Haggai? What's, what is Haggai? What is that? Hagar, the horrible? What are we going to look at? How are we doing this? Haggai, it's a very small book, two chapters, two chapters long, in the Old Testament, it is the third book from the end of the Old Testament. It's right there towards the end. Minor prophet, easy to miss, just two little chapters. And yet, when I read Haggai, I see such a vital message. I, I have come back to this little book several times, and every time I learn something new, every time I see something vital to me, I find conviction that I need along with hope and, and a promise that only God can give. So today we're going to look at chapter 1 of Haggai, the entire chapter, verses 1 through 15. If you don't have a Bible with you, we've got those Bibles in the pews in front of you. Those are great to follow along with. Feel free to, to use one of those. It is page 791, and you'll notice immediately you don't see page number 791 at the top of the page. So on that page where you see 790, it's the next one over. That's how, that's how the numbers work, right there on the on the right side of the page. Also, just for your information, several years ago I did a study where we took, in my Sunday school class, some of you will remember this, we did a book of the Bible a week. We did an overview of each book of the Bible. We did a, a book every week, one page for every book of the Bible. The, there are several copies of the pages for Haggai back there. If you want to take them home and read them and get ready because we're going to spend the rest of August in this little letter. You get a it's important that we get a sense for the time and place that this little, this little book was written. It was apparently very important for Haggai that we understand the time and place. If you look at the very first verse, he says, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoiadak, the high priest. And, and you're like, ooh, does it going to get better than that? You know, this is incredible. You know, it's spine tingling at this point. What's next? I can't wait. But it's very important that you notice Haggai gives us an exact date for when he wrote this. An exact date. We know exactly when this is written. There are very, very few books of the Bible that we know that about. He wrote this. If we, if we take it by today's calendar, this was written on August 29th, 520 B.C. August 29th, 520 
B.C. 2,535 years ago this month. Now, the, he's writing to the governor of the people of Judah. He's writing to the high priest. And he is writing to the people of Judah. The people are back home. After years and years, after generation and captivity, the people have finally come back to Jerusalem. They have been in captivity to the Babylonians. They have been in captivity to the Assyrians. And finally, to the Persians. They come back home. And Solomon's temple, the centerpiece for the life and worship of the Jewish people, Solomon's temple in all of its glory and all of its splendor has been destroyed. It is gone. It is nothing but rubble. Yet the people are back home in their land. So what would be their first priority after coming back? Verse 2 continues, Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. And then the word of the Lord came by hand of Haggai the prophet. Well, is it time that you yourselves, for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and have harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. The house of God, the temple, was in ruins. But the people had come back to Jerusalem and they had built their own homes. Not only had they built their own homes, they had finished them. They had paneled them, he says. You know, they would build the homes out of rock and out of uh, clay, out of mortar, out of brick, out of wood. And then on the inside, they, they put paneling up. They, they went down to Lowe's and they got paneling. You know, they paneled the inside of their houses. And, not just wood paneling, they would put like scroll work up, you know, they did the moldings and everything. Some of you haven't even finished the moldings of your house. And they did all that. He says, well, you've, you've done this for yourselves. Why haven't you worked on the house of God? You, you've put all this attention in, in your, what your needs are. Why haven't you finished my house? Why haven't you even begun on my house? In the meantime, the place to meet God, the house of worship, the temple was a wreck. So by their actions... And by their inactions, they had proven what their priorities were. And God was not a priority. <clears throat> we often mistake the urgent for the important. You know what I mean? We mistake the urgent for the important. Anything can be urgent. A uh, medical report suddenly becomes urgent. Uh, a car wreck suddenly becomes urgent. A, a dirty diaper right before church suddenly becomes urgent. We live in the tyranny of the urgent. It grabs a hold of us. It takes our attention and it zaps our energy. Meanwhile, God is neglected. Our faith is abandoned. And priority number one lies in ruins. And it doesn't escape God's notice. And so God calls us, He calls us through Haggai, consider your ways, He says. Consider your ways. Do your choices show that you put God first. Do our choices, the choices we make, show that we put God first. I love the way 
God addresses this problem through Haggai, He takes it back to them. In verse 5, He says, consider your ways. And then again in verse 7, He says, consider your ways. Take a good look at your action. What are you doing? How does this seem to you? Does it look like I'm a priority? Does it look like you're putting me first? Or does it look like you're serving yourselves? There's two things that are, that are happening in this passage. Look again at verses 5 and 6. It says, Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so by putting them into a bag with holes. Verses 5 and 6 is about their attitude. It's about their attitude. Because, you know, when we are concerned about putting ourselves first, when I put me first, I'm never satisfied. If I'm putting myself first, I'm never going to be satisfied. I'm never going to have enough. I'm always going to want more. I'll eat, but I'll never have my fill. I'll drink, but I'll, I'll never feel like my thirst has been quenched. When I put myself first, I suffer. It's not God punishing them. It's them becoming slaves to themselves because they've not put God first. Then you go on down to verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, which means Lord of armies, by the way. A little aside. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And what you, when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts? Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens have, uh, above you have withheld their dew, and the earth has with, withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and on the hills, on the grain, on the new wine and the oil and on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on their labors. See, the people refuse to put God first. So the second thing that happens is God withholds His blessing from them. In the first few verses, those verses 5 and 6, it's their attitude. They're putting, God, they're putting themselves first instead of God, and they're never going to get enough. They are living under the tyranny of, of what they can get for themselves. But in verses 7 through 11, God says, okay, you're not going to put me first. I'm not going to be a priority, so you're not a priority to me either. There's a great quote by C.S. Lewis. He said, there's two kinds of people in the world. There are those who say to God, thy will be done. And then there are those to whom God says, all right then, have it your way. And God had said to the people of Judah, have it your way. If you're not going to put me first, I'm not putting you first either. He had shown them, if I'm not a priority in your life, I won't make you a priority either. And Jesus talked about something very similar in, in Luke chapter 9. It's, it's a little passage that I think most of you are familiar with. Three little exchanges that Jesus had with, <clears throat> with people who, who wanted to follow Him, or that He wanted to follow Him. In Luke 9, verse 57, it says, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, first let me go back and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, 
Go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my house. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. You know, we, what strikes me about that passage is none of those things were inherently wrong. None of those things those people wanted to do were inherently wrong. Let me go back and bury my father. <laughs> That's necessary, right? I mean, you've you got to bury the dead. That has to happen. Let me go back and, and bury my father. Let me go back and say goodbye. Let me at least go back to my house and tell them where I'm going. That would be nice. You know, I'll leave a note on the fridge. Let them know that I'm going to be out for a few years. Jesus says no. The question isn't, the question is, is Jesus the priority in your life? Or is Jesus just another obligation? Is Jesus just another thing that, that I'm obligated to do? It's often been pointed out that the man who says, let me go back and bury my father, it's been pointed out that his father's probably not dead. You know, it was the responsibility of the firstborn to stay with the parents. The responsibility was the firstborn you don't get to have your own life until mom and dad are gone. And so you go home and you take care of your parents. You see, see to them in their old age. And then after they've passed, you can have your own life. It's often pointed out that this man probably had a long obligation yet. But Jesus doesn't want to be another obligation. Jesus doesn't want to be another thing that we have to do. He demands to be Lord. He demands to be first. And so God says through Haggai, consider your ways. Do our choices, do our ways show that we put God first? I think one of the things that we see in these verses is that God honors our choices. God honors the choices that we make. For better or for worse, God will honor your choices. If we don't put Him first, if we're more concerned about ourselves, about feeding ourselves, about meeting our own needs, then He will let us do that on our own. He will let us be completely self-reliant by withholding His blessing. When we hold ourselves back from God, He honors that. He holds Himself back from us. Consider your ways. <clears throat> Haggai's words to the people cause us to ask ourselves, what would happen? What would happen if we were more concerned about pleasing God than pleasing ourselves? What would life be like if we were more concerned about pleasing God than pleasing ourselves? Verse 8 really forms the heart and the focus of this entire book. Verse 8, God says, Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. Verse 8, blows me away. And I say that to my shame. I think we all would say it to our shame. We get so concerned. We get so concerned about obedience. We get so concerned about just doing things right. We get so concerned about trying not to sin, trying to, stay, trying to keep ourselves out of hell, that every now, and then we, every now and then we get concerned about giving God glory. You know, on Sunday mornings we talk about glorifying God. We'll, we'll talk about that a little bit. But we forget about God's pleasure. Not only did He create us, he created us for His pleasure. Philippians chapter 2, verse 13 says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. What does God take pleasure in? He takes pleasure in, in us. He, 
do we do we put his, put his pleasure above our own? You know, God God's not pleased with our laziness, but God isn't pleased when we're so busy that we take our attention off of Him. He isn't pleased with our laziness, but neither is He pleased with our busyness. Rather, God is pleased when we take the initiative, when we do His will, when we do what we were created for. Verse 8, He tells them, go to the mountains, go to the hills, and gather the wood and come down and build this house. He has to tell them to do that. You notice, no one told them to go to the hills and gather wood and build their own houses. No one had to tell them, go to the hills, get the wood, panel your house, make your house look really nice. No one has to tell them to do that. They just did it. We, you notice no one has to tell us. God doesn't have to tell us to do nice things for ourselves. God doesn't have to tell you to take a me day every now and then. God doesn't have to tell you to you know, get an extra helping. You know, you can do something nice for yourself. You deserve dessert today. God doesn't have to tell you that. We just do it. We do it for ourselves. We know how to do things for our own pleasure, but do we put God's pleasure above ours? I suppose God could have just caused torrential rains in the hills. You know, He could have caused it to rain. He could have caused it to flood up there. And, and then He could have caused all the, all the wood, all the trees to just wash right down. And the trees could have washed right down and they could have been deposited right at the building site. And then maybe they would have taken the hint. But instead, He says, you go up there. Go up to the hills. You get the wood. You take some initiative. Sometimes we get in this mentality that we have to wait to serve God. We have to wait for Him to tell me exactly what I should do before we serve God. We wait for Him to reveal Himself to us. We wait for Him to show us what to do. But Philippians 2.13 says, it is God that works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Just get busy. Get busy. Just do it. Just serve people. Just love people, just care for people, just give Him pleasure. Consider your ways, Haggai says. You work and you work to bring yourself pleasure, but you never have enough. But what happens when you work for God's pleasure? What happens when you put Him first? And what He shows us is that when we put God first, everything else just falls into place. Now you may have noticed that there are a couple of strange names in this little book of Haggai. There's a couple of very strange names, and it's best that you get used to it because you're going to see them a lot. We get introduced to a couple of characters here. One of them is Zerubbabel. That's, that's a perfectly fine name, Zerubbabel. If I had another son, we might go with Zerubbabel. I don't know. What's the trouble, Zerubbabel? Yeah. But Zerubbabel is the son of Shealtiel. You know, if, if your name is Shealtiel, you don't want to give your kid a weird-sounding name, right? Or maybe you want to make it sound worse than yours. So you name him Zerubbabel. So we have Zerubbabel. He is governor of Judah. He's a descendant of David. He's a descendant of King David. In fact, he's an ancestor of Jesus. When you look at the genealogy of Jesus, you'll find the name Zerubbabel there. Zerubbabel is heir to the throne, and yet he's not on the throne because he's an heir. He's on the throne because the Persians have appointed him. Darius has appointed him to serve as governor of Judah. Zerubbabel has no real power. He is a puppet ruler. You notice we don't tell time by the reign of Zerubbabel. We tell time by the reign of Darius, king of Persia. 
No one's concerned about Zerubbabel. There's no real power there. There's nothing there that, that he's able to do aside from what the Persians tell him to do. And then we've got another guy. His name is Joshua. He is the son of Jehoizadak. Now, Joshua is a perfectly fine name. Joshua is a great name. No one names their kid Jehoizadak anymore. But Joshua is the son of Jehoizadak, and Joshua is the high priest. So here's who we've got. We've got Zerubbabel, the, the, the governor who is serving, who has no real power at all. He is the leader of his people, but he has no power. And then we have Joshua, the high priest, who has no temple. We've got a king, a ruler with no power. We've got a priest with no temple. These guys are losers, okay? They have nothing. And yet, every time God addresses the people through Haggai, He addresses Zerubbabel and Joshua first. God respects the leadership. God respects them for who they are, for what they have been called to do. No, they're not perfect. But when God blesses the nation, He blesses the nation through those two imperfect men. You go on in verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Oizadak, the high priest, and all the remnants of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the word of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehoiadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. See the order of what happens here? God tells them, go to the hills, get the wood, get busy. Show me you're putting me first. And then in verse 12, they obeyed. They obeyed God. They obeyed the prophet who brought his message. And they obeyed God and they feared God. They respected Him. They honored Him. They, they obeyed and they feared. They did the things that they should have been doing from the very beginning. And God responds in verse 13. He says, I am with you, says the Lord. And then it says, He stirred up their spirits. That's the way it's supposed to work. When we put God first, when we serve Him, He promises to be with us. I think that's what Haggai's people got wrong, and I think that's what we get wrong sometimes too. We hold back from God because we're waiting for Him. We hold back from God because we're waiting for Him to prove Himself to us. We're waiting for Him to stir up our spirit. Lord, make me feel like serving. Make me feel like doing something good. Make me feel like going to church today. Just make me feel it. And then I will do it. We wait for Him to stir up our spirits. We wait for Him to energize us. We make, wait for Him to, to, to make us feel good, to make us feel special. Prove to me you're my God. Prove to me you're God. Bless me and then I will serve you. You fix this problem I got and then I will serve you. You get me out of this jam that I got myself into and then I will serve you. That's not how it works. That's not putting Him first. Putting God first means putting God first. It means that He's 
first. It means putting Him first before the blessings. It means putting Him first before He even answers your prayer. Putting Him first. It means putting Him first before He heals your hurts and heals your heart. Before He stirs up your spirit to make you feel like serving Him. It means realizing that you were created for His pleasure and He finds pleasure when we serve. So it means obedience to that. It means fear and respect. Fear and respect come before our own comfort. You notice those last two verses. It says, The Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehoiadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, the second year of Darius the king. You know, he, he gives us the date again. He tells us when, when that happened. He, we know exactly when that happened. On the 24th of the month. 23 days later. 23 days later. So it's September 21st when they finally get around to building the temple. Three weeks. Three weeks from God saying, your houses look nice. What about mine? Why haven't you worked on mine? Your houses are finished. Why haven't you even started on mine? Three weeks to the day when they actually got busy. Three weeks from the, to the day when they actually got to work. What do you think they did for three weeks? I don't know. I don't know what they did for, for three weeks. Maybe they pondered. Maybe they puzzled. Maybe they sat in committee meetings and said, do you think God really wants us to do this? Yeah. Maybe they took a vote. You know, three weeks, we'll take a vote. We'll see if we, if we really should do this. Maybe it was three weeks. Maybe it was three weeks of gathering supplies. Maybe it was three weeks of drawing up blueprints. Maybe it was three weeks of, of praying and planning and assigning jobs and deciding who was going to do what. But think about that. Three weeks. I think about what if today, what if today was the day? What if, what if this is the day when you decide to put God first? What if today is the day that you said, no longer am I going to live for myself, no longer am I going to live for my comfort, you are first. Whatever I do, you're first, God. Wherever I go, you're first. Whatever I spend my money on, you're first. Whatever I give that gets my attention, you're first. The words that come out of my mouth, <laughs> you're first. The way I treat my neighbor, the way I treat my friends, the way I treat those people I don't even really like, you're first. What would that be like today? But also, what would it look like in three weeks? What would He stir up within us in three weeks if we just simply committed to putting Him first today? What would your faith be ready to accomplish then? I love what God promises here. He says in verse 13, I am with you. I am with you, declares the Lord. He spoke those words September 21st. 520 B.C., God said, I am with you. I am with you. And he signed his name, declares the Lord of hosts. I am with you. He spoke those words through Haggai the prophet. Then 520 years later, he spoke those words again in Bethlehem. 520 years later, he spoke those to a baby born in Bethlehem, a baby that they called Emmanuel, which means God himself with us. I am with you. God is with us. 
we come together here today to declare to one another, God is with you. God is with you. Whatever challenge you're facing this week, whatever it is that has driven you to your knees, whatever it is that has broken your heart and broken your spirit, God is with you. Whatever it is that's challenging you, we come here and we come together and we come to this table as a reminder, God is with you.